Lord, in your life, you gave up everything for us because it was worth it all. All that you had to go through, it was worth it. And God, now we have the opportunity to sing a song as such as we just sang that is following you really worth it all to us. And Lord, I pray that that would be the cry of our hearts, that we would truly be willing to give up all things that this world says are so important to gain you. And Lord, today as we continue to look at the life of Jesus Christ and more specifically the death, Lord, I pray that you would just guide us, direct us, and help us to see what it is in our lives that you'd have for us to sacrifice as we look to the example of our Lord and Savior. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Indeed, yes, we will be back in Mark. We're almost done, by the way, if you've been following along. You know that we're in Mark 15. It's only uh, another chapter and a half or so that we're going to be looking at. Uh, we started this, I believe, back in January. So indeed, we will be done within the year. Um, and it's been for this last several months, I believe, uh, a great journey for us as we've been examining the life of Jesus, the life that he lived, the identity he has, and, and also the acts that he did and is still doing. And we're still into that as we're looking at Mark. We're going to be in chapter 15, as I said. In just a minute, we'll do a little bit of review, and then we'll get into what we're talking about today. Because today, we're going to get to the point where things are coming uh, to a culmination. All the things that we've been talking about, all of what Mark has been writing about, all that we've been learning, is now coming to the point of what has been foretold really since the beginning of this book, in the beginning of time even. And we see now, we're coming to the point where Jesus is about to give His very life. He's about to... Uh, have the ultimate act of self-sacrifice, which is the fact that He is going to give His very own life up for you and for me. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm hoping today, though, as we go to the book of Mark, we may look at this in a little bit different way. Uh, you know, a lot of times, listen, what we're going to talk about today, if you've been coming to church for a long time, or even not even a long time, you've heard us talk about the death of Jesus Actually, if this is the first time you've stepped into a, a church, you probably at least know a little bit about the name of Jesus, and you probably have heard about the cross, that Jesus died on the cross. Maybe it's even just as simple as you've seen the necklaces and those things that symbolize a cross, and you know that somehow, some way, Jesus died on that cross. But we all are so familiar with it, and I would say as a church, we are so familiar with hearing about Jesus' death that we honestly right now have sometimes can be numb to it. We can forget exactly what it is. We can forget exactly why it happened and we can take it all for granted. And I believe that that happens to all of us. I know I throw myself in that. Like it's just, we just come to accept it. We say it. It's just Jesus died for us. And we forget the power that is behind it. But I believe as we look at Mark, as we look at this narrative of Jesus giving his life and we put it in the context of what we've been looking at in the book of Mark we will see there is something else happening here that we so often don't even think about and we don't fully comprehend as we always do in the last few weeks I've been doing this I want to do this again because I want us to understand just a little bit of what Jesus might have been feeling and going through as we go into today's sermon each week I've kind of said, I want you to put yourself in this situation, whether it's being betrayed or, or whether it's a, a situation in which you have found uh, that you have been unjustly or unfairly accused of something and how that would make you feel and what that would do f with you and your attitude. And today I want you to think back to a time in your life and uh, whether uh, as a parent or as a child there was a situation in which you were separated from one another. I remember when I was a kid, I was in, I remember the store actually, it was in uh, the, the Kmart in Wellsville, and I was a kid with my parents, I don't know how old I was, I don't remember, but I remember that I decided to wander off to the toy section. Now, uh, as a kid, maybe some of you did that, you, if you wandered off, uh, and my parents, I don't know what they were shopping for, but it wasn't toys, but that's where I wanted to be. And I went to the toy section, and I looked through the aisles, and 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 
all of a sudden I had this awareness that my parents were no longer with me, that they had gone a separate way and I had gone my own way and now I had no idea where my mom and dad were. Now, if I was smart and I was thinking, I would have just stayed there because my parents knew that if I went missing, I probably went to toys and that's where they ended up going but I decided that I was going to go on my very own search. And so I started searching around the store looking for my parents getting upset, crying. There came a point where I had no idea what to do. Luckily, there was a, 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 a staff person there. One of the clerks saw me, saw that I was upset, and they said, you know, what's going on? I said, I can't find my parents. And they did the whole, uh, would the parents of Kenneth shut, please come to the front. You know, what every parent doesn't want to have happen. And they came and they got me and my mom and my dad were upset. I was upset. The feeling that we had when we were apart was so intense. And I remember that even as a kid. But it's even worse as a parent, isn't it? Like, so now I've got kids and like one time we were at the play museum up in Rochester and our two oldest are playing and they're having fun and all of a sudden Felicia and I look around and Noah is nowhere to be found. And if you've ever been to the play museum, it's just a crowd of kids, right? This isn't just like easy and we start looking through the, through, the, through the place, we start looking through the museum, calling his name out, Noah, where are you? We're missing you. And we're starting to think the worst thing. Where possibly could he be? Did somebody take him? Is he hurt somewhere? What is going on? And as a parent, if you've ever been there, you know the feeling that you get in the pit of your stomach that just won't go away. And there's this, there's this intense pain. There's really no other way to explain it. Because you just don't know and you're separated from your child or if you were a kid and you're separated from your parent, you have that very similar feeling. Where are they? Where could they be? What has happened? And that, that pain, that, that hurt, that stress, that, all those feelings would just well up. Now within 10 minutes we found uh, Noah and of course Josiah was so helpful. He went around and started asking every uh, staff member he knew, we lost my little brother, can you find him for us? Um, and eventually, after looking around, he had gone off into a corner. He was playing nicely. There was no problem when we found him. And the sense of relief was just incredible, right? And if you've been there, you know how that feels. And today, as we look at what happens to Jesus on the cross, I'm not going to say that that feeling that we have when we lose our kids or our kids lose their parents is anything in comparison to what Jesus had to go through because what he had to go through was infinitely worse but I want you just to get a glimpse, a thought, a feeling. Just think back to what that was like if that's happened to you. And if it hasn't happened to you, imagine what it would be like to have be separated from one of your family members and not know where they are and to feel that pain and that anxiety of wondering where they had gone. As we talk about Jesus' death today, one of the main things we're going to see, we're not going to talk about all the details of crucifixion. I've heard very good sermons where the details of the crucifixion have been talked about. The, the weight of the cross, the size of the nails, what they would do, how they would do it, and how incredibly painful it would be physically. And all those things are true. And all those things are terrible. And all that Jesus had to go through physically was just horrible. But I would say that in the moment of Jesus' death and in the moment of His crucifixion, as we look at the book of Mark, there's a bigger picture it's not just about the physical suffering that, he's, that he had to go through at, in a Roman crucifixion that was awful and terrible and one of the worst ways you could possibly be executed. There's more going on that even is more painful than that. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we get to the passage, we'll, we'll be reading chapter 15 starting in verse 16. Let's look back, do some uh, contextual work as we remember where we've been. So far in the book of Mark, we've seen that Jesus is the suffering servant king. This is important. Remember, the suffering servant king, that is his identity. That he is a suffering king that would serve humanity. And today we're going to see the culmination of talking about that. As such, he was truly God and truly man. He is truly God and truly man. It's God come to earth as man. And if he wasn't 100% man, what we talk about today wouldn't matter because he wouldn't be able to die. But yet, if he wasn't 100% God, then it wouldn't matter today if we talk about what we're going to talk about because his death would just be like any other death. But because God and man, his, his, the union of his natures, he's truly God, truly man, he's able to give his life and that life 
will give forgiveness for sin. It's because of his humanity and it's because of his deity and how they play together. So it's important we remember that throughout the book of Mark, we've seen that. And also we've seen, and this will continue, this is the culmination even of this. Jesus has been opposed and rejected by Jewish leaders. He's been opposed and rejected not only by religious leaders, but also all throughout, through, there's been people all along that have rejected him. And that's going to continue even in his death. We see that Jesus, in the very beginning part of the book of Mark, when he's talking to his disciples, he is very clear that Jesus' mission was to suffer and die for all people. What we see happen here in Mark 15 shouldn't surprise us. And it doesn't surprise us, but it did surprise some of Jesus' followers, even though it shouldn't have. Because Jesus said all along, look, my mission here is not to set up a political kingdom, but my mission is to suffer and to die for all people. And that's what we'll see happen today. Then we looked at the fact that if Jesus is going to give his life, then following Jesus, if we're going to follow him, means self-sacrifice. That our life will be marked by saying uh, no to the things of this world and saying yes to the things of God no matter what the cost. We just sang a song about that. It is worth it all to give up everything. All that I have lost, I have found in you. And that's what we're called to do as a Christian. That we will lose all things for us that would be for us and we would give everything to Christ and as a result, He would bless us completely and fully. Maybe not in a physical way, but we know that we have Jesus. That's all we need. And then Jesus continues throughout the book of Mark to show and teach his identity to his followers. It's not a hidden fact. When Jesus dies here, the understanding as we've read the book of Mark, we know what it means. It's not just a senseless death of just a man, but it is the death of a man who is God, who is the Messiah, who would save people from their sins. The last few times we've been together to look at the book of Mark, we've seen that Jesus is betrayed by those closest to him and is arrested secretly. His suffering, it it continues, his suffering really begins even with his own closest people who have walked away from him. His disciples, the ones who have been following him for over three years, and now they're walking away from Jesus. And then the worst part of it, then Judas betrays him with a kiss. One of his close followers betrays him to people who arrest him secretly and the, the spiral to his death has begun. And then last time, last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus is tried and sentenced to death. Not only is he arrested, which is one thing, but then even though it wasn't true, the charges that were brought against him, even though it wasn't just and it wasn't fair, Jesus is sentenced to death because he's tried by people who are trying to find any way they can to make it so that he can die. And they charge him with blasphemy because he says he's God, but he's not lying and therefore it's not blasphemy. He is God and yet they won't believe it and so they call it blasphemy. And then they bring it to Pilate, the Romans, and they say not only is it blasphemy, but now he is king. He's setting himself up to be king and to overthrow Rome. The very thing that Jesus has been saying all along he wasn't there to do is what now they're accusing him of doing. And so now we found ourselves at a place where Jesus has lived his life, done his ministry, taught who he is, showed people who he is, taught about self-sacrifice, and now we're going to see him fulfill what he said was going to happen as we've been going through this book. And he will fulfill the, the sense of suffering and death that he has been talking to us about. And it's at the hands of not only the Jews, but also the Romans. And that's where we find ourselves picking up in chapter 15. We're going to read verses 16 through 32 to start. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. 
And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So after the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. All right, so the first thing we're going to look at this morning is that Jesus' crucifixion brought public humiliation. Jesus' crucifixion brought public humiliation. It wasn't just about the physical death, but first of all, we see that Jesus' crucifixion brings public humiliation. We see it start with the fact that after he's sentenced to death, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers take him aside. And, and there's a good chance that not only is it just the Roman soldiers, but it's also those who were consenting to his death or around at this point. And what they're doing, they start to mock him. Jesus was mocked and beaten. He's called the king of the Jews. But let's not be fooled here. These men are not calling him the king of the Jews and bowing down to him because they truly believe he's a king. It's because this is what he's been accused of. This is his crime. And it's done to mock him. But it's not only done to mock him, but it's also done to mock his whole people. That they were going to kill this king of the Jews. The Romans hated the Jews. And and if he's the king of the Jews, then he's most hated. And so they are mocking him as we're told. This is when they clothe him in the purple cloak and they put the crown of thorns on his head and they begin to salute him. Hail king of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage. They are not giving him worship. They are mocking him. They are publicly humiliating him. They are doing whatever it can not only to physically harm him, which is a good deal of this, but it's also really to humiliate Jesus to the the very worst you possibly could do. Jesus has already been scourged at this point. He's already been whipped to the point of not even really looking human, and now they continue the physical beatings, but they also continue the emotional abuse, the emotional wrecking of Jesus as they mock him mercilessly. They even put a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and they act like they're worshiping him. It's all to be a humiliation. And see, Jesus was feeling this. Jesus was there. Jesus is still, remember, a human being. He is understanding this feeling. He is being completely and utterly denied, rejected, and mocked. The God of the world. Keep this in mind. Jesus is the Creator. We're told that all things were created for Him and by Him. Jesus has created these men that are now mocking Him and beating Him. And He just lets it happen because he knows it needs to be done. He knows that suffering and dying is necessary for the salvation of people. And so it begins with this. It begins with this being mocked and beaten. And then there's a little phrase in here uh, in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Now, we don't quite fully see this. In other gospel, you'll see this. And if you understand the context and, and the historical context of what's happening here, the reason that someone has to be asked to carry Jesus' cross is because he's been so beaten, so humiliated, so, uh, so weakened that someone needs to carry his cross. And what they did is they paraded people. Jesus was made to parade himself to his execution. When the Romans crucified somebody, they didn't just secretly take him to the cross, put him up, and that was it. No, they paraded the criminals through the street. They wanted people to see, this is what happens if you disobey. This is what happens if you break the law. And they parade criminals, and Jesus is part of this parade. And he can't carry his own cross as they're headed to Golgotha, as they're headed to the place of the skull where he would be crucified. He is being paraded, he is being marched, and people are seeing it. There are passerbys, there are people that continue to see this whole scene lay out. And Jesus is dragging his own cross to his death, and then he can't do it anymore. And so this poor Simon has to then step in. 
father of Alexander and Rufus. There's a good chance that these two guys, by the way, since Mark mentions them, are probably influential in the church of Mark's time. Not that that really matters to this point, but to understand that what was happening here was powerful. And so Simon takes the cross, they lead him to Golgotha, where they're going to crucify him. Jesus was to pray to himself. This was a public humiliation. People would see him and not even recognize him as a human as he walks through the streets. But then it didn't end there. We also see that his public humiliation continued uh, after they get to the place where he's going to be crucified. We see that he is reviled while on the cross. He is reviled while he is on the cross. Verse 24 says, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It's interesting that Mark here just says, And they crucified him. He doesn't go into all the details of how the crucifixion would be happen or how what crucifixion was because it would be understood by the readers but but then mark moves on quickly to say what else is happening during the crucifixion and the first thing is that they're they're gambling on jesus's possessions the few things he has they're gambling on it trying to get cast lots to figure out who gets to take what this is a common practice and it was being done now to the savior of the world there was also people walking by and as they walk by, we're reading in verse 29 that they wagged their heads. This idea of just looking at him and just complete, just this is disgusting, mocking, humiliation. They're wagging their heads at him, we're told. They're mocking him. They're questioning his identity. You see that here. Ah, so you would destroy the temple and rebuild it. Then why can't you save yourself? To one another, they're turning to each other and saying, he says that he can save others. He has saved others. He's healed others. Why can't he heal himself? And they're doing this loudly. And so not only are they attacking him and mocking him, but really they're questioning his very identity. Ah, Jesus, if you were really who you said you were, you would save yourself. If you were really who you said you are, then you will come down. If you do that, by the way, we'll believe. If you just come down from the cross, Jesus, we'll believe. Which, by the way, was not true. They would have found some other way to explain it. They would have found some other way to not believe. But they're telling Jesus this and they're mocking him and they're questioning who he even is. Now many of us, if we were in that situation, would be like, alright, I'm going to show you who I am. And would have done it. But Jesus knows that this, is, this moment right now that he's in where he's on the cross, he's dying, he is being mocked, he is being uh, uh, just questioned. He knows that this is not a time to save himself. But what he is doing is for the purpose of saving others. And so Jesus knows that. And so Jesus doesn't take himself down, even though, yes, he could have. But he knew what had to happen. And so he continues to be reviled. Psalm 22, 17 through 18. I'm actually going to have you turn to Psalm 22. And I want you to keep your finger in Mark. We'll be back there. And once we get back to Psalm 22, I want you to keep that after we come back to Mark as well, because we'll be there another time. But Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. It is regarded by all, uh, all, of Jew, all of the Jews. This would be regarded as a messianic psalm. That means it's a psalm that, yes, was about David, but was looking forward to the Messiah who would come. And we're going to look at chapter 22. We're going to look at the first verse in just a little while when we see Jesus on the cross. But I want to draw your attention uh, to, chapter, to chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. And this is what David writes in a foreshadowing of what would happen to the Messiah. And David writes this, For dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does this sound familiar? David foretold this. Way back in the beginning of Israel, and now it's happening to the Messiah. It's happening to Jesus. And so what's happening here is not just a random chance occurrence. This is something that is happening because it had been foretold. This was a sign that again, Jesus is without a doubt the Messiah. The Messiah of the world. 
is being crucified, being mocked, having his clothes gambled over. This is the humiliation that Jesus faced. And also, let's not miss this part where it says here, earlier on, when it said in verse 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Say, okay, that's, yeah, we know that. One of them ends up asking Jesus for forgiveness and one doesn't, and that is true. But think about what this means. Jesus is on the cross between two robbers, and we're talking about humiliation. What is happening here is very simple. Jesus is being treated as and counted as a common criminal. In Isaiah 53, 12, it says that he would be numbered with the transgressors. In other words, that he would be seen and he would be treated as if he was just a common criminal that deserved death. And that's how Jesus is being treated. He's up on the cross between two robbers, insurrectionists, guys that deserve death. And yet he doesn't deserve this death. And yet he is right with them. That as people look, they see him with two robbers and then he is equated as being a criminal. The God who created the world. Jesus himself, the Messiah, the Savior of mankind, is nothing at that point to everyone that's watching except a criminal. That is what Jesus, our God and our Savior, did for us. He endured the worst humiliation anyone will ever face. Take any story in your mind of when you've been humiliated in your life and I can guarantee it doesn't come close to what Jesus felt and what Jesus experienced as he is publicly humiliated beyond anything we can imagine. And that's just the beginning of his crucifixion. As he's on the cross, it's not just about the physical, but it's also about this public humiliation. He's willing to serve, he's willing to suffer, even though he is God, even though he is the king, he is willing to be the suffering servant king that he must be. As we move on in Mark's uh, narrative here of Jesus' death, we're going to be in verse 33, and we see the next part that we're going to look at this morning. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani. I know I probably butchered that. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And that's where we're going to stop. We'll hit 38 and 39 in a second. We see as Jesus' crucifixion is reaching a a point, by the way, uh, the sixth hour is noon by Jewish time. So we're talking about the hours between noon and 3 p.m. This is not a time that it is normal to be dark. Okay, let's keep that first of all. Some people say that when it gets dark at Jesus' crucifixion, it was a solar eclipse. Uh, the, The moon cycle would not allow that. What is happening here is not an eclipse. It's not just uh, normal darkness. This is a divine darkness that is brought upon the land as Jesus is crucified during the very middle of the day. Noon to three in Jesus, everything turns dark because Jesus' crucifixion brought divine judgment. Not only did Jesus' crucifixion bring public humiliation, but Jesus' crucifixion brought divine judgment. See, darkness came in the middle of the day. Darkness throughout Scripture is always a sign of judgment. And in Amos 8, 9, and 10, if you ever wanted to look that up, you would see it as also uh, an, a symbol of divine mourning. Of the mourning, M-O-U-R-N, the mourning of God Himself. This is a sign of not only judgment, but of mourning. This is, a, this is the worst of the worst. The darkness falls There is no light. Judgment has fallen on sin. And mourning has begun as God mourns over what's happening to His Son. For three hours, there's darkness. It goes to to me to consider then that for three hours, there is divine judgment and mourning that is being poured out upon Jesus. 
You see, the truth of the matter is, and we'll get there in just a minute, the rest of the Bible is very clear. The reason Jesus died is to take our sin in His body so that He would take the punishment for our sin. All the times we've turned against God and we deserve to be separated from God forever in hell. We deserve that separation and that judgment upon sin because it goes against God. And Jesus took all of that judgment upon His own body upon himself so that we could be saved and that's what's happening in these three hours of darkness and then we see then in this darkness and after this darkness and this judgment is over jesus cries out my god my god why have you forsaken me going back to our illustration At this moment of Jesus' life, there is a break in the connection that He has with His Father. Because God is... All the judgment that has to come down from heaven is coming upon Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus feels abandoned. Jesus calls out to God in His abandonment. You see, God couldn't look upon Jesus anymore as He sees the sin that is on on Him, as He sees the sin that is being judged. God can't even look at what's happening to His Son. And in that moment, Jesus feels abandonment. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? This isn't just just a feeling of, oh God, why did You do this? No, this is why have You forsaken Me? there 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 is some kind of separation at this point that has not been experienced between God and God the Father and God the Son at this point. And it's happening and Jesus feels it. That feeling that we might feel when we lose our child or our child might lose us is nothing compared to the feeling that would be going through Jesus as His heavenly Father, the one He is one in three with, is turning His face away because of the judgment that He is facing. Just imagine the feeling. Imagine the atmosphere, what Jesus has to be going through. Like I said, this pain is ten times worse than any physical pain he's going through. His own Father, his own, the, God the Father uh, is, is, is looking away and casting his judgment upon Jesus for the sin of the world. We have no idea what this is like. This is what Jesus was willing to go through for us. I told you to keep your finger in Psalm 22. I want you to go back there. Psalm 22 once again, this verse, this, this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is not just Jesus in his uh, feelings and in his feeling of abandonment calling out just generally. But Jesus obviously is referring back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 verse 1. This should sound pretty familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse 2, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Listen, this is David, but it's foreshadowing the Messiah. And Jesus is calling back to this. He's fulfilling more prophecy, and he's saying, God, why have you forsaken me? He felt so far from being saved. This was predicted. And it's not surprising to hit us, and it, it wasn't surprising to God. It wasn't surprising to Jesus. He knew we'd have to do this, and he did it anyway. But, even in this, Jesus felt abandoned by God at this point, as David would have in, in Psalm 22. But I want to draw your attention to the end of Psalm 22. As we're in the book, of, as we're in this chapter, this chapter is a messianic psalm. It's foreshadowing what's to come, and we've seen now that it's talked about the crucifixion. It goes back directly to what Jesus says about God forsaking him. And now let's look at the end of this chapter because this is where hope is found. Psalm twenty-two, verses twenty-seven and twenty-eight: All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. Listen, the end of Psalm 22 is different than the beginning. Because even as Jesus quotes this abandonment, this, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what's to come. 
that there will be salvation for the world as a result of his death. And so even as he quotes this verse, even as he talks about his abandonment, Jesus knows what's to come. And he's even looking forward to that by referencing Psalm 22. That yes, things are bad now, but things are going to be incredibly better because the Savior of the world, he, the salvation of the world is at stake. That anyone and everyone who wants to know Jesus, who wants to believe and commit their lives to Him, doesn't matter who, what family you're from, doesn't matter what people group you are, anyone has access to be able to come to Jesus for salvation. And Jesus knows this. And even in His time of abandonment, even in His time of this feeling of being separated from His Father, knows that the better is coming. And what He's doing is worth it. The next part we see when Jesus' crucifixion brought divine judgment, we see that Jesus gave up his own life. Jesus gave up his own life. I say this because it's important for us to understand that no man killed God. God is not dead, as we have been told in movies and all those things, but God also has not been killed by man. Jesus gave up his own life. In fact, recorded by Matthew, what we're told here in Mark, first of all, is it says uh, that, uh, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So this loud cry he calls out, and then he breathes his last. You see, Matthew uh, tells us that he yielded up his spirit. And also, if you've looked at other uh, Gospels, you'll see that, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus voluntarily gives up his life. Because God can't be killed by man, but God can allow that to happen for the good of people. And so Jesus gives up his own life. He yields up his own spirit. See, the Romans didn't take Jesus' life. The Jews didn't take Jesus' life. Jesus really gave it up. He volunteered to die so that we could be saved. God was in control of this whole thing. Let us not think that somehow Jesus is taken by surprise or that God is taken by surprise in the fact that, the, that all of a sudden now Jesus who was sent to the world to save the world is being crucified. This was the plan. There was no question. This was known that it was coming. And to the point of even the very end, God is in control. We can't control anything. Jesus is in control. And so we've seen so far that Jesus' crucifixion brought humiliation. Jesus' crucifixion brought divine judgment. But Jesus endured the humiliation and Jesus endured the judgment to get to this third point. And that's that Jesus' crucifixion brought true reconciliation. Jesus' crucifixion brought true reconciliation. The first thing I'm going to say isn't even found in the book of Mark. But many of you know that in the other gospel accounts, when Jesus is on the cross before he gives up his life, he makes this statement, it is finished. The first thing we see is that Jesus finished what he came to do. When he died, when he gave up his life, as Mark would tell us, when Mark says that he cried out and breathed his last, Jesus had done what he had come to do. It is finished. His mission has been completed. The payment for sin that had to be made so that people could be saved has now been done. In fact, the word it is finished in Greek means paid in full. Jesus has put down the payment. Jesus has said my life is payment for the sins of the world. If those, whoever will come to me can be saved and will be saved as a result of Jesus' death. He finished what He came to do. What He's been saying throughout the book of Mark, I am coming and I have, I'm here and I have, the kingdom of God is at hand. I am going to suffer. I am going to die. And next week we're going to look at the next part that He'll be raised up again. But Jesus has finished what He came to do. He suffered and died for the people He came to save. He served us in the greatest way possible. This has been cool as we've gone through the book of Mark to remember that many of these things that Mark has said is, in, is from the perspective of Peter. And I want to turn over to 1 Peter, who saw all this, who really records it for us in a very real sense as he tells Mark what to write. 
And now in 1 Peter, he writes his own book, he writes his own letter. And I want to read to you what he says in 1 Peter 2, 24. This is why Jesus did what he did. This is why Jesus died. This is why Jesus endured the humiliation, endured the judgment, endured the physical pain, endured all of the things we've talked about. It's for this reason in verse 24 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, Jesus' death was to heal our wounds. Jesus' death was to kill us, to allow us to die, die to sin, that sin would be killed, and that we would live to righteousness. And He bore our sins in His body. He took our sins. All the times we've turned our back on God and said, I'm done with you, I'm doing things my own way. All of those things He took upon Himself to die the death that He died, to experience all the suffering He experienced for you and for me, so that we could be healed. And not only that, I want to then just skip over to the next chapter in 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. As Peter again reminds us of what Jesus' death was all about. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And this is where we get to the point that Jesus' crucifixion brought true reconciliation. Jesus died to, yes, bear our sin, and also to bring us to God. From the very beginning of the Bible, as we look at the book of Genesis, sin comes into the world, and what sin does is it separates us from God. It says, listen, I'm going to do things my way and not God's way. I'm going to walk away from Him. I'm going to rebel against God. That is sin, and it has separated. It has created a problem with the relationship. When Adam and Eve were first created, God was there with them, walking through the garden with them. They were shoulder to shoulder. They were together, and that was broken because of sin. There is a real truth that the relationship between God and man was broken way back at the fall of man. And that brokenness has been seen throughout history. But now Jesus says, look, now Peter tells us that Jesus' death was to bring us to God, to repair the relationship, to bring reconciliation, to bring what was once an enemy, a, a relationship of being enemies, now can be a relationship of being friends and allies because the Because God Himself came to die on the cross to bring us to Him. To repair that relationship. And another thing we see in Mark though, why we even get to this point of reconciliation. If 1 Peter tells us that, but let's look at what happens in the book of Mark. In verse 38, after Jesus Jesus gives a loud cry, breathes His last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to to bottom. And you might say, this makes no sense. There's a curtain that gets ripped. What's the point? I don't understand. If you understood Jew- the, the Jewish temple system, there was a veil. Like, and not just like this little thin, like what we've got in our windows here. No, this was a veil you couldn't see through. You couldn't hear through. It was like this thick. It was, there was no way you're getting through this veil. This curtain that's hanging between the, the temple where people could be. And then there was the Holy of Holies where you couldn't enter except for the high priest once a, once a year. And that was a separation. It said you can't come into the presence of God. You can't. If you do, you will die. That's what happened in Jewish religion. It said there is this veil that if you go through it in the temple, if you go to the Holy of Holies, you will die because you cannot be in the presence of God. You cannot have a relationship that way, a a personal connected relationship that way. And so we see that that's there. And then we see now that it's been torn. When Jesus dies, that veil has been torn in the temple. What's the point? I've got to look at Hebrews. I know we've been in a lot of other passages, but to understand what's going on here, we've got to look at the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. If you want to turn there, feel free. If not, just listen closely to what we see in Hebrews chapter 10 as we're told about this idea of Jesus 
this veil being torn because Jesus is bringing us reconciliation with God. In verse 19 of chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What does the writer of Hebrews say here? He said, because of Jesus, he's a new curtain. The new curtain that separates to the Holy of Holies, the new curtain that separates from direct access to God is no longer a curtain in the temple, but it's the death of Jesus. And if we receive the death of Jesus on our behalf, then we have access to God. It says in verse 22 that if we have accepted the death of Christ, the one who is now the great priest over the house of God, it says, let us draw near. We can draw near to God because of the death of Jesus Christ. We don't have to stay at a distance. We don't have to be so far back that God is somewhere and we, have, we can't comprehend and we can't live with Him. We can't have a relationship with Him because we can through the work of Jesus Christ. He is the mediator between God and man, as we're told other places in Scripture. Jesus is the one that has now given us true access to God, truly uh, repaired the relationship between God and man. And so his crucifixion indeed has brought true reconciliation. We have access to God through Jesus' sacrifice. Don't take that for granted. Don't take that for granted. We have direct access to God. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through any other channel to be able to talk to God, to be able to have a relationship with Him. We can have it because Jesus died for us. Jesus took this on Himself and therefore removed the separation between God and man. And finally, as we finish today in Mark, we see this character come out after the veil is torn after Jesus breathes his last, he gives up his life, and it says, well, Then, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. We don't know what happens to the centurion. Is he truly saved at this point? Does he go on to live in the church? There's a possibility. Does he not? We don't know. But what we do know is that there was something so incredible about his crucifixion, that even Gentiles can see his identity. Even Gentiles who have no concept of the Messiah that is to come understand that there was something special about Jesus and that the way he died was miraculous and that it made it to the point where even a Roman centurion will say, truly, he is the Son of God. What Jesus has been claiming all throughout the book is now being proclaimed by a Roman centurion you see jesus's crucifixion was more than just bleeding on a cross it was more than just spikes in his hands and in his feet more than a crown of thorns more than dying through suffocation more than any of those things jesus's death was a humiliation it was a judgment and it brought reconciliation and that's where our hope is found so my questions today as we close are this. Have you accepted Christ's death on your behalf? I don't know where everybody stands here today. I don't know where you are with Jesus, if you have a relationship with Him. But have you accepted Christ's death on your behalf? You see, Jesus did die for you and for me for our sins. The times that I've said we've rebelled against God and gone our own way, Jesus says, look, even though you deserve to be separated from God forever and go to hell and be punished forever and experience the judgment of God for your sin, you don't have to anymore because I died for you. I died on the cross. I gave up my life. I was willing to be humiliated and judged for you. Just come to me in faith. Trust that I did that for you. Believe in me. That's what Jesus says. And if you have not come to the place where you've said, Jesus, I know that your death is paid for me and I accept, that on, on, I accept that for myself. And as I accept the penalty you've paid, uh, then I will commit my life to you because you have done everything for me. And now as we've saying earlier, not only was it worth it for him to die for you, but now you can say it is worth it to live for him. If you have not accepted Christ's death on your behalf, don't Don't wait. Jesus died so that you could be saved if you will come to him in faith. 
if you'll trust in him completely, if you will trust in his death that it truly paid the way for you to be forgiven. And if you're thinking, well, okay, Jesus died, but why would I want to follow a dead man? Come back next week. Because Jesus doesn't stay dead, he rises again. And he proves that Jesus, he proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had power over sin and death. He can make somebody completely new because he can even reverse death itself. If you have not accepted Jesus for yourself, if you have not started a relationship with Jesus Christ, do it today. Come to Him and beg Him for forgiveness. Ask Him to apply His death for you. And then commit your life to Him. That's what He asked. It's, it's hard and simple all at the same time. And if you need to know more about that, talk to myself, talk to one of our elders, talk to the person who brought you today. We would love for you to know how you can know Jesus. A couple other questions to consider for all of us. Do we really live like Jesus do we live like Jesus really took our judgment? Or do we live in a way that, one of two ways, either we think that God is constantly looking for a way to judge us for our behavior, if I mess up, God's going to be right there to squash me. No, Jesus already got squashed, if you want to put it that way. Jesus already got punished. Jesus took our judgment. God isn't looking to destroy us or to judge us. Now there is consequences to our actions, no question. But Jesus took our judgment. Do we really live that way or do we live in guilt? Do we live in feeling like there's nothing we can do because we have to pay for our sins? We don't have to pay for our sins if you've come to Jesus. He already paid for them. But maybe it's on the other side. Maybe it's not so much that we always are feeling guilty, but maybe we just take the cross for granted. Yeah, Jesus died for me. That's great. That's cool. Jesus died for me. Yeah, I've heard it since I was two years old. We don't truly understand that that means that God himself took our judgment. And then finally, do we embrace our reconciliation with God? Or do we find ourselves thinking that somehow we're still, uh, we can't access God. We can't have a relationship. We can't live a life with God because he is there and we are here and there's, there's no way that we can ever have an, a relationship with him. See, Jesus died to bring reconciliation, that we can be brought to God, that we can have a relationship, that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the mediator, Jesus is the way that we can have direct access to God. Do you feel like you can't talk to God? Do you feel like you can't come to Him with your problems? Do you feel like He's so distant? I heard somebody say this the other day, a couple weeks ago. Listen, if you are feeling that God is distant, the truth probably is that you're distant from Him. He's not walking away from you. You might be walking away from Him. And so if God feels distant to you, you need to embrace Him. You need to walk to Him. You need to know that you have access to Him through Jesus Christ. Those are the things we need to consider as we think about the death of Jesus. As I said, come back next week and find out about Jesus and His re resurrection because there is great hope in what Jesus has done on the cross. All right, with that, let's sing a final song together. Please stand.